Welcome to Beyond the 18, a podcast where we talk tactics, break down the biggest games. I am Patrick Duffy, and I'm joined by my good friend, Rodrigo Plaza. How are you doing, Rodrigo? I'm doing really well, doing really well. Uh, I haven't been watching a whole lot of soccer this weekend. Uh, I'm uh, boycotting the international games, uh, you know, to send a message that this is a terrible idea. Um, But also, I think I've just been taking a little bit of a break, uh, looking forward to Thanksgiving, um, letting my mind turn off for a little while because it can't do anything while my stomach does all the work. Uh, You know, a lot of things to look forward to. Nice to have a little break. And of course, excited for this weekend's round of games. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, I don't know if you can tell, listener, but I got a new mic. I'm excited about that. Little ASMR for you. Mm. <laughs> listener, this week we are going to be doing something a little bit different. Uh, we are going to be taking a deeper dive on Southampton FC, a team that both Rodrigo and I have been getting really into this season and really enjoying watching. So uh, we're going to take some time to talk about kind of the context and history of the club, and then we're going to go over some tactical analysis and then talk about what we see as their strengths and weaknesses moving forward. So going to kind of go right into it and just start talking a little bit about how Southampton got to where they are right now. Um, they were one of the first 20 clubs in the Premier League. Uh, they hung around in the Premier League as a lower a lower table team um, and were eventually relegated in 2005 under Harry Redknapp. And then in 2009, the club was facing bankruptcy and the club ended up being purchased by this German-Swiss businessman named Marcus Lieber, who brought in Alan Pardew as his manager. Um, from that point, they did end up being uh relegated again into League One. Um, But in 2012, after being promoted to the championship, they were brought back up to the Premier League and have been in the Premier League since 2012. I would say since 2012, though, their time in the Premier League has been pretty rocky. They've gone through a a lot of managers, some highs, some lows. Um, Pochettino, Ronald Koeman, Claude Puel, Mark Hughes, uh, and now we're at the Ralph Hasenhutl era. Um, under Ronald Koeman, they had their best finish. They finished six and qualified for the Europa League. They've had some great players, especially in that season. They had some big-name players who you might recognize, listener. Sadio Mane, Maya Yoshida, Victor Wanyama, Shane Long, Dusan Tadic, um, and Virgil van Dijk, of course, their, their big sale. Um, an interesting thing about Southampton is even though they've kind of been hanging around the bottom, they're almost always in that relegation fight in their time in the Premier League. Financially, they've actually been a really well-run club since 2010. Um, The club was basically run by this guy named Les Reed. He served as the vice chairman from 2010 to 2018. Uh, and, And during that time, he really saw the development of Southampton's Youth Academy and viewed that as a priority for the club moving forward to ensure that they were able to be a selling club to develop players and and move those players on. Looking at their financials now, Southampton is 15th out of the 20 clubs in their annual wage bill, only at 50 million pounds a year. So they have a relatively cheap roster. And um, if you're looking at the table right now, they're currently sitting fourth. So 
their return on player spend has been great. And in terms of net spend in the transfer window over the last five years, they have the lowest net spend of any club in the Premier League. So they've only net lost $31 million, um, which is more than $30 million less than the club that sits in second place. So this is a, a, a club that has really um, been built on developing young players, purchasing players, and being able to sell those players on. So basically from 2010 to 2018, they had created this model that worked really well in doing that. And that model was based on scouting players extensively, but only scouting players in Europe. They knew they were limited in resources, so they wanted to focus um, in Europe because that's where they had geographic proximity and that's where they thought they'd be able to pull the best talent. Another strategy Southampton used was to really buy very early in the transfer window rather than buying late and getting into like bidding wars. They knew who their players were that they wanted. They would get them in the door really quickly. And like I mentioned, Southampton tends to buy younger players. Um, but I, I want to say younger players and not young players because Southampton was one of the first clubs to really invest in data and data analytics. And so they would spend a lot of time tracking players and trying to get seasons of data on those players um, before they would purchase them, but still purchasing them before they were, you know, in their mid-20s and already fully developed and, and viewed as stars. One of the big things with Southampton, though, is that they've always viewed the manager position as this uh, kind of secondary figure, as someone who's pretty disposable. So you heard me go through the list of all the managers who've been there, and that was actually a very intentional decision from from their uh, from the top for Southampton. They really wanted to just be this financially viable club that's kind of hanging around and and netting out money, um, and the manager can come or go. Their system of player development and purchase is a thing that they're going to really hold on to. But in 2017, um, Southampton was purchased by a Chinese businessman named Gao Jisheng, and he has almost immediately changed up some of that like core tenet to what Southampton had been. He really wants to see Southampton develop as this club moving forward um, to be a consistent top 10 club and to be a club that challenges for the big six. And one of the first moves he did um, in his time in, as, as the new controlling owner was he put pressure to look for a new permanent manager, and that manager has been Ralph Hasenhutl since 2018. We're going to talk a lot about uh, Ralph's tactics and the stuff that we're seeing him do at Southampton. One notable structural change, though, for him is that he really wants Southampton to not only have this established network and system of scouting and developing young players, but to also have a really established system and style of play. So he actually went to the, the youth academy and looked at the U23 schedule, and he changed the schedule of all of their games to make sure it would match up so he could go watch all of their games. So he's really intense. He really wants to see the academy players playing in his style of play, which he views as the future for Southampton moving forward. And so he goes to all the games to make sure that that's happening. I think that the reason like I'm highlighting this is because Ralph is a departure from historically what we've seen from Southampton. We've seen them kind of like invest in managers like Alan Pardew, who they can hope will bring them up from relegation. Mark Hughes, protect them from relegation. And Ralph is much more a project investment and a manager who they're looking to, yeah, invest in and, and see some return over the long term. Um, I think 
the thing that I'm envious of as an Arsenal supporter when I'm looking at Southampton is their ability to be able to purchase players low and be able to sell on players at a high value and then get good return on the investment. So when they're looking to spend and invest in players, they're in investing really well. And Danny Yang's, I think, is probably the player that highlights that the most. Um, so I think that context is going to be useful for us as we're thinking about Ralph, um, because if you've been following the Premier League, you might have a pretty set view of Southampton, this great academy. They develop players like Gareth Bale, um, Theo Walcott. Uh, there, there's a lot of folks that have come through that academy, and that might be the only dimension that you really think about them as. But this is kind of a new new view on Southampton. This is kind of a new look, and I think um, a lot of that comes down to the, the new ownership and, and new management. So... With that context in mind, uh, listener, we're going to hop into talking about some tactics and what we're seeing from Southampton. If you're not dialed in and been watching them, they're currently sitting in fourteenth or in fourth place, place, uh, just two points off of first. Five wins, two losses, and one draw. They started the season with two losses, the draw to Chelsea, um, but I think they have three wins now on the bounce. So uh, a really strong start from the club and they're yeah they're they're sitting very pretty on the table but Rodrigo I wanted to switch gears and hop over to you for a minute to think about tactics how do you see Southampton setting up um what are they doing tactically what, what do you view as Ralph's philosophy and um how it's being realized out on the pitch yeah it was it's it's helpful to get that history from you though Duffy I I honestly haven't you know hadn't dug that deep um into their process and it's helpful and I I think I think it's interestingly I mean I think it's interesting that there's this emphasis on development um and you also see them playing a 4-4-2 and I want to talk a little bit more about that I think a little later um but I I I just the right away that I made some connections there so that was really interesting um so yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about how they set up traditionally, kind of how they've been setting up most games. Now with Danny Ings out for it looks like about four to six weeks, I said or so, I won't mm-hmm. be back until about mid December. Uh, there might be some changes that they have to make, and I think we saw that in the Newcastle game. So I want to talk about that too. Uh, but but let's start with kind of how they have been playing, which is this four four two with the Danny Ings Che Adams pair up top. So. They, they, they line up in a 4-4-2 that I think appears pretty flat. Um, it, they're not playing a diamond in the middle, right? It's, uh, they're not having like one of their holding mids sit deeper necessarily on the other stand, you know, up front. Um, so they have a pretty flat four there in the middle, four in the back, and then the two up top. Um, now, how they play 4-4-2, uh, right, is not necessarily the only way you can play 4-4-2. Um, you can play any formation, I'm sure, you know, a myriad ways, but their their way isn't isn't all that isn't all that it's got some pieces that I think are kind of nuanced and some pieces that I think are pretty traditional. So the first thing that you, I noticed about them um, that's a little traditional in a certain sense is that they like to play with the overlapping uh, outside defenders. So you're gonna see Kyle Walker Peters, for example, on the right hand side. 
coming up pretty high, somewhat frequently, um, getting the ball, looking for crosses. So much that you could even start to think that maybe he's like the midfielder if you just like tune in for a little bit um, until you see them kind of have to sit farther back on defense and realize that he's the outside defender. So that's one thing that they're doing, uh, I think, pretty, pretty consistently. Um, the other thing that they're doing uh, is that they're taking their outside midfielders and they tend to pinch them centrally into the middle of the field. And that's not, it's not like uh, a super, super nuanced idea, but it's a little bit different than how I think some people might expect that play to happen. Um, it's, it's, it's not uncommon to have the outside mids in a 4-4-2 uh, taking the wide space, so the two central players, right? So you have the two forwards in front who are working together very tightly, and then having the outside mids pop up into the lanes right and the left of them, um, which, mm-hmm. of course, has happened sometimes. But here what we see a lot is we see them pinching in, um, almost kind of in front of the two cent- holding mids, if you want to call them that, the two central mids, um, which creates very clear lanes for those overlapping runs, like the one from Kyle Walker-Peters or Ryan Bertrand on the left. So those two things mesh very well, right? You have the two pinching in, uh, and then you have these outside midfielders kind of going up forward. Um, The last piece, of course, is the duo up top, Che Adams and Danny Ings. You don't ever really see them, right? When you see them written down on paper, we always write them down flat, like one on the right and one on the left. When you watch them play, though, they don't tend to stay flat all that often. Almost always one of them is going to be somewhat farther ahead of the other. Um, And that's kind of for good reason. A lot of times when you're playing a two up top, you always want one of those players to be creating depth and the other one to be a little bit more free and mobile underneath so that it actually kind of looks like a 4-4-1-1. But the difference is, at least the way I would think of it, is the way you present it to the players. When you present a 4-4-1-1, you're saying you're, you know, the playmaker underneath or the shadow striker or whatever, and you're the target. But when you play 4-4-2... You're kind of telling them you both have responsibilities for this, right? So when somebody does one thing, you got to do the other, right? And you kind of create this inherent kind of you guys always need to complement um, when you're playing in this role. That's that's such an interesting point because I I think when I'm I've been I was rewatching some game going into this pod and thinking about their location and seeing them. Yeah, I expected to see one on the left, one on the right, them sort of like fitting into that map that we see when we look at a four four two. Right. But it wasn't like that at all. It was like even on the side, sometimes like I would see uh, them completely switch sides of the field and have some more right. flexibility. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you a question though. Please. You, you you said four four two, and kind of like they're not running a diamond. They're pretty pretty flat in the middle of the pitch. Why is that? Why would you want to line up flat? Because in my mm. mind, I'm like, a diamond, like, that sounds sick. Diamonds are sick, dude. They're un- right. unbreakable. Only a diamond can break a diamond. <laughs> um, yeah. But well, that's flat, a good, like, it's a good mm, question. I'm out. So, I, 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 yeah, let's talk about that, the distinction between the two. Um, so, when you play with a diamond in the middle, uh, there's a few things that happen. One, like I said, kind of just now with the two up front, you tend... When you, when you present it as a diamond, you're kind of inherently telling one of the players that you're going to be playing more, more of a defensive role and the other is likely playing more of an offensive role, likely as a playmaker. Um, and if you set them up flat, 
then you are kind of hedging that stricter role a little bit more. You're saying either one of you could play that role in in, in the moment, um, but you're both responsible. And it kind of creates this this what I always have thought of as this kind of piston metaphor where when one goes up, the other drops. And then when the other goes up, the other drops and you have that responsibility. The other thing is when you play a diamond in the middle like that, a lot of times what that does is it brings both of the midfielders on the outsides a little tighter on the inside. Now, like we just said, they already are pinching in, but remember what they tend to do is they pinch in in front of the two midfielders, almost creating like a box of four in the middle. In a diamond, like I said, when they pinch in, they're the sides of the diamond. Um, and so it, it's not quite the same shape um, and, it, it, as they are when they're pinching in now. But when you do that, the other thing that you do is you give up some space out wide. Now, given the fact that they're pinching in already, that doesn't, I mean, that's like a, a, a tactical implementation, I guess I'd say. It, it's not making a huge difference because they're leaving space in the outsides anyways, and they're definitely focusing centrally. But in tr- in, a, in a more you know generic decision making process, that's usually one of the pieces. Is well, if we're going to play diamond, we're just admitting that the outside lanes will be more open. If we're going to play flat, we expect the outside mids to cover those areas more 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 frequently, especially on defense. Um, so. That that's like a little bit about how we would make the Makes decision between the two. Yeah. Um, and you know, when it comes to the way they put all this together, right? So they've got this duo up top. And I guess one thing I'll just last detail about that is the way I like to think about them is like pretend that they're tethered together with like a string that's like maybe fifteen yards to twenty yards long. They should always be that distance away from each other, if not closer, um, because when they get split up, they're not going to be very effective. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously it happens occasionally. You know, a game is very dynamic, but in general, you want them to always be working together, defense or offense. Defense is a great example because if you get split up, you're both essentially non-factors. You're going to get played around very quickly, and now you've got two flat lines of four behind you and you've already gotten two players beat right so you should have a numerical advantage especially on the counterattack, right um now so that, that's what the, their role so you've got these three pieces right and these are kind of the most maybe the most fundamental pieces uh you've got the two up ta- up top the two forwards working together in tandem kind of always building off of each other usually one's dropping in a little bit to get the ball the other one pushing forward to create depth and vice versa sometimes they'll go out wide but they usually tend to do that kind of together anyways you've got the midfielders on the outside pinching into the center kind of in front of those of those what i would call holding midfielders especially when they do that they're kind of more reserved and then you've got the outside defenders running up the lane so what this kind of means in general is that I think you've said this several times. Um, Southampton is very focused on the center of the field, right? They're, they, they are stacked in a way, and the way that they move is to overload the center. I mean, they literally putting four players sometimes in the center of the field, all four midfielders right there in the heart of the field. And they do that on offense, 
where the midfielders will be running from the sides in inwardly and giving almost a little more freedom to the two up top to kind of like make off runs because they don't have to hold that space centrally for the through ball because mm-hmm. they've got guys doing that. But also on defense, sometimes when the ball is played centrally, they're going to squeeze in and kind of try to put that box around the ball and, and win it right there. Now, what they're giving up in that context are those wide spaces, right? And on offense, it could be that you're going to, like I said, rely on the outside defenders to be an outlet for you when the other team also collapses and tries to get in tight to win the ball. Um, But on defense, on the counter, that can also be kind of dangerous because if you get the ball, if you were to get, you know, focused like that in the middle, but be able to pop the ball out wide, everybody's going to have to run back because if the outside defender challenges that ball, it's pretty likely he's going to get beat. And now it's a really big breakdown, like a really, really big breakdown. You don't ever want to be focused centrally have an outside defender run towards the ball and then get beat because now it's against three in the back that haven't shifted over probably significantly. It's, it's not a good situation. So mm. I think that's kind of what you see sometimes on defense when they do focus centrally and they don't make it work. Everybody has to run all the way back and kind of reset somewhere near the 18 because otherwise it's game over. And in the Premier League, right, sometimes you can't do that fast enough. You're going to get countered faster than you can get everybody back. And then you're going to rely on, you know, somebody to make a, a good defensive play individually to slow it down or stop the play and end the game. I mean, end the play. Uh, so that, that's definitely kind of how I see their dynamic is when they win the ball, they're looking up to that pair right away to see if that pair has the space or ability to plug through and make a play. When they don't have that, then they're looking for their other options, which usually would be kind of an inward diagonal run from the outside mids. You can lay it off and let them run in centrally with it, kind of you know creating almost like a playmaker feel, like I've got the ball running centrally and there's two guys in front of me, I'm looking for the through ball. Or if none of those are on, or if in transition they are for a little bit but don't seem to work out all the way, You've got the outside defenders making the run for that support out wide, so it's 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 kind of a like I said it's not super complicated, right? It's in a lot of ways it's kind of straightforward, um, but it's a very team oriented approach to doing what they do, um, and I, I think that's part of the reason that I like it and that you can kind of rely on some consistency from them. Um, you're going to be doing kind of the same thing every game, and you're going to be kind of looking for these for these very specific patterns, um, and especially the two up top to kind of solve the problems for you when you get the ball. I wanted to ask you a question about that because mm-hmm. I think that um, yeah, four four two. It just feels like really like classic, um, but at the same time, you don't actually really see it played in the Premier League by especially the big clubs all that free, all that much. Yeah. I feel like four three three is a lot more in vogue for especially like big six kind of clubs. But mm-hmm. that makes me wonder then, like, what kind of personnel does a team? What what kind of personnel drives the decision to be like we're going to be four four two? Yeah, because well, I think there's yeah. like a balance right with Ralph of like I'm bringing in my guys, but I'm also going to play the system that like probably best works for the guys that I have now. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Yeah, so I'm I'm just curious this about like, what question. kind of players do you want to Absolutely. have when you're doing this sort of formation? Yeah, so two things. Um, one thing, yeah, you don't see a lot of teams playing 4-4-2. Um, and I think that that's maybe even connected to the answer here in a, in, a, in a way. And this actually brings up, I think, in a way, I mean, maybe this is just my lens because this is definitely a formation I grew up playing. Um, and the approach to playing this formation when I was a kid was this way. But there's two, two ways to look at what you would play a 4-4-2 for, in my mind. One is, do you have personnel that make very good complement pairs throughout the center of the field? Because if you look at a 4-4-2, you have this central spine of duos. You have the two holding, or sorry, the two central defenders, the two midfielders, central midfielders, and then the two attacking up top. If you have players that you have very good complements with, like often players that can do this, can do everything. They are kind of all around, but they have a personality edge. Like, I like to be more of an attacking. I like to be a little more defensive. You see that I think the best in the center midfielders for for Southampton. So mm-hmm. in the center of the field, you have uh, James Ward-Prowse and Oriel Romeu. Romeu is a little bit more of a holding guy, and James Ward-Prowse is a little bit more of an attacking guy, but you wouldn't say that either of them can't do the other job, right? Yep. Like, James Ward-Prowse is a great defensive player, and Romeo can make great passes as well when called upon to do it, but they have a, an edge like that. Having really strong pairs like that is, is great. It's, like, super, super valuable. And to make the most of it, you want to put them – in a place where they're constantly going to be working together. And that's in the center of the field because that's usually where you want to, you know, you always, you want to be very strong there or you don't want to leave an open lane down the center of the field for the other team, like ever. Um, We make sacrifices temporarily, but you don't. So that's one way I look at it. Like if I'm going to play that because I think this is like the best, best thing for what I have, I'm looking, do I have pairs like that? If I don't have pairs like that, or like I only have one, then I'm only going to look to make that pair there. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And especially when you're playing on the attack, when you think about forwards, if you only have two very solid forward forwards, that's an option for you to like just play those two. Or if you only have one, well, now maybe you want to put him in the middle and play a couple like winger types on the outside. Right. So that's that's my approach. Now, the other thing, though, that you can play four four two uh, to try to, you know, a goal is to develop players. Because if you look at the way that we talked about how Southampton plays, they don't actually really look much like a 4-4-2 when they attack. (laughs) Right? You've got overlapping defenders, leaving three in the back. You've got outside mids pushing into the middle, creating like a square. Like, the way I like to, the way I've talked about it with my dad uh, about this is he describes 4-4-2 as the equivalent of like a Swiss army knife. It's like, you know, Swiss Army knives have a ton of little instruments and tools in them. And when you play 4-4-2, I guess what he's trying to get across, and I think the way I understand it is, whatever tools you have, you can find a way to use them in a 4-4-2. And it's also an extremely easy thing to diagnose. If you're getting beat somewhere, you can look at the player that's playing in that role, and it's very clear what's going on. It's like, ooh, we're getting beat in the middle. Well, I have my two pair there, and one of them keeps running off and not staying home. That's why we're getting beat there. Or Mm -hmm. we're getting beat on the sides. 
Well, who isn't there? Oh, look, my outside defender keeps getting really high and then not being able to drop back and play defense. That's why we're getting beat, right? Because you have very clear lines and very clear aisles for every single thing. So if you're getting beat, you can evaluate and diagnose the problem. And on the other hand, if you have a guy that can do something, you can move him to that place and have him do it. Like, oh, I got you know speedy outside defenders. Well, then we're going to overlap. If you don't have that, you don't have to, and you can still play 4-4-2 right? I guess what I mean to say is that like 4-4-2 is very neutral. If you don't have speedy outside defenders, you don't need to have them overlap. You can still play the 4-4-2. Think about that compared to like a 3-4-3. If you don't have speedy winger types, 3-4-3 is going to probably kill you. You're not going to even play 3-4-3. You're going to play five in the back because they're not fast enough to do the whole job, right? Right. Right. Or you're going to play five up top because you just can only attack, right? So certain, I feel like formations really require things and 442 does a little less especially because you can teach people to to work as a pair well enough to get by with a 442 um so i guess what i I mean it's hard to summarize all of this information but i i guess what i'll say is this is if you think about a team that's trying to get younger or high potential players build them up in value and then sell them or ride them to success. 442 is a very systematic approach to playing where things are very stable and you can slot them in without having to put a ton of weight on their back. Do just your job defensively, play into these players who are making these roles up top for example, and we'll be okay. And as they develop and start to show you they can do other things, you can start to make that a part of the roadmap. And when you do that, suddenly when you're attacking, you don't look like a 4-4-2. You know, suddenly you've got an outside defender making a run. Now you've got three in the back and you're a 3-5-2. Um, or, you know, maybe you've got good midfielders that are pushing in and now it's more like a 4-2-2-2, um, right? You can start to shape that 4-4-2 dynamically, like within the context of the game into other formations without telling everybody such strict rules that if it doesn't work out, now you have to tell, okay, no, 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 now go back to 442. No, you don't have to do that, right? Um, so when I was playing, that was definitely the approach. We played 442, and as we developed certain qualities, we implemented those within the 442, and we started to change our shape um, such that later when it was like we should play 343, we're like, well, we already kind of know how to play that. Um, you know, we'll just – put that guy a little higher and that guy on the outside. That's how we are when we attack most of the time anyway, so no big deal. Um, but now we know, right, this is a more consistent approach. So it's just a, yeah, I think it's a really neutral, flexible um, thing, like a, a tac- tactical shape. Um, and whatever you have, you can kind of make it work uh, and, 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 and at least come out with something, something stable, something stable and safe for your team. When you were talking about how the outside midfielders pinch in and you sort of get these boxes, mm-hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense in thinking about Ralph. Like historically, his time at Leipzig, he was known for playing a 4 2 2 2, which is almost what you end up having there, right? You're, when, when your outside midfielders pinch in over the top. Right. And I think that's like an example of like that's sort of maybe uh the next step right that's like you can push us from being a 442 all the time we get better in the system we get stronger we have players who really understand their role we right. can start pushing into like okay when we defend we're 442 when we attack we're 4222 exactly and i think 
uh, I think your point about like, yeah, development and just like knowing a little bit about how he wants to see the U23s develop in the really same similar style of play and really be watching them and giving feedback. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, listener, I think we're going to take a quick break on tactics. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Southampton's strengths and weaknesses as a team. Okay, welcome back. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what we view as Southampton's strengths. Rodrigo just walked us through kind of like a tactical view of how they're setting up and playing, um, but want to maybe think a little bit more specifically about what works really well about the way that they're playing, who is playing really well for them, um, what do we view as the club's strengths in the moment. I, I think I want to just start right off the top, just real quick. James Ward-Prowse is incredible. Um, I think he's quickly becoming maybe the best set-piece taker in the Premier League. I think he scored three, two or three goals from set-pieces, um, from direct free kicks uh, in the season so far. And then he's just a, a winner on the ball. Like, he, he wins the ball in his one-on-ones, and, yeah, he, he just drives the middle of the field for them. I, I think he's a, he's a terrific player, and he's... Yeah, he's a real strength. Any club would be happy to have him with the form that he's put playing right at right now. So, um, yeah, clearly a personnel strength for Southampton. 100%. I mean, just, you know, I think that one thing that's a great addition to a team that plays 4-4-2 the way they do is a team that can be very effective from set pieces. And he, I mean, in the, in the game against Aston Villa where he was just taking absolute snipes, and then the size that they bring in general, I think that you know it's very it's a, it's a, it's 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 really it's a very nice advantage to have uh, when you're playing four four two because you can get in some games where it's kind of a grind and you're not able to break the other team down. Um, things aren't just quite working well enough, and to be able to rely on an effective an effective scoring opportunity from from a set piece is like a it's a real benefit. Um, I think. I think the biggest worry that I have about their, you know, the, I think it's a big strength for them, but obviously is a little bit in, vulnerable right now is the, that attacking pair up top. Um, you know, there's definitely a lot of pressure on those two forwards to be productive in games um, when you're playing 4-4-2 because they are often going to be a very significant part of the buildup, the assist, or the finish. Like somewhere in that movement, those two usually need to be involved because they're centrally located, right? Which is a very important place to be in the field for scoring. Um, they could be receiving a header. They could be, you know, building up in the box themselves. They could be playing the ball through. There's a lot of ways that they can get involved. And that's clearly a dynamic that they feel very comfortable playing around and with. And with Danny Ings, you know, in this injury, I mean, it sounds like he'll be back somewhat soon. Um, you know, that's definitely a, a little bit of a concern. But a strength, I would say, any given day is that pair. I mean, they, they get they have great complement um, and it's dynamic. And that's the kind of that's the kind of uh, it's always the kind of attacking element you want. You want something that works by solving problems in the moment, not something that works just because, you know, you're super fast because. That's something you can prepare for more easily. A dynamic pair that gets along and reads the game well together is a lot more difficult to deal with. Um, 
definitely a strength there. Yeah, the numbers back that up. I think half of their goals have been scored by Che Adams and Denny Ings. So, uh, and then I think assists. I think between the two of them, they also have four assists. So, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of production, and I think that aligns with your view of the way that tactically they're setting up, and yeah, and, and the reliance they're putting on those two players. Yeah, I think also with Southampton, when I watch them. I'm kind of coming to view their style of play as disrespect ball. <laughs> Arsenal was known for a little while as playing respect ball, where we just like pass the ball around side to side forever. Yeah. Southampton wins the ball, and then in transition, they're immediately looking to pass the ball forward and to attack. Hmm. Like every single time a player wins the ball, their first look is up the field. And I would kill to have that type of energy and vibe at Arsenal because. Players, their first look is back and passing the ball back and keeping the ball and possessing it safely. Mm-hmm. You know, this could be a vulnerability at times for Southampton because sometimes they turn the ball over. But this is the way that you like transition quickly out of the midfield, quickly into attack. And yeah. they do that really well. And I, I, I think that that's, it, it feels to me like definitely the result of clear coaching and expectation. Like we win the ball, we're looking for a pass to break the lines moving ahead. We're not looking to just yes. respectfully cycle the ball in the back. And right. I, I I love that about them. It's why I really enjoy watching them. But I think it it's also a, a driving a lot of their success. It's a big strength of the team. Definitely. I mean, I think it's – I mean, it goes hand in hand with their ability to be effective on the counter. Um, because, like I said, when you have a pair up there that you not only – you know, on, on paper are scoring goals, but culturally everybody understands like our best scoring opportunity is to give those two players up top a 1v1 or a 2v2 situation and let them do duel. You know, that that's a great expectation because you're saying always see if you can find that pair, right? Or find a way to get the ball up high right away so there's more space for those players to work with. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that, that's definitely the mentality that I see as well. Um, I think that with every, right, so, like, I know we're not talking about weaknesses yet, but, like, one thing I think just to keep in mind is that, like, everything has a trade-off, right? So, for example, their greatest strength is that they rely on this pair and they're the great outlet for scoring goals and making things happen in transition because they're there and available to get the ball. Or at least one of them is, right, and the other one is creating depth. But that's also super vulnerable because then if one of them gets hurt or, you know, something happens, then you kind of have to find another option. Um, yeah. And I think the same thing also goes with the way that they play pinched in centrally. You made mention of this when they were playing Everton, that they were crushing Everton kind of by just forcing, you know, like concentrating so much personnel in the center of the field. And Everton didn't have much of an answer for that. That's definitely a strength for them as well. When they're playing teams that aren't where they have like a holding, like let's say you played a team with a, with a holding central defensive midfielder that won the ball a lot but was not good at distributing it, he would be very vulnerable to that kind of like clustered press because he's not going to have the technique to play out of it. And if he plays backward, that's a huge vulnerability because you've already got like two fiends around the, you know, waiting around for a free ball. So anybody that has struggles to possess the ball in the middle, or I guess I could even say, possesses the ball in the middle a lot 
might might come up against some some challenges when they have to play a team like Southampton. I think that is ties really nicely into maybe my last point about what I view as their strengths. I think that Southampton um, will has done and will continue to do really well against teams in the bottom half of the table because I think that usually those teams that's exactly what they have, right? They have like some decent six who's able to kind of pick up the ball and, and win it and prevent the attack from happening and kind of recycle it. And then, yeah, you know, those teams are either looking for a counterattack themselves in that moment um, or they're, they're looking to, yeah, plan the break or look for a mistake. Mm-hmm. And Southampton doesn't really, they, they don't really offer that in that moment. They don't give you the time to be thinking about that. Um, if if you don't have like great personnel and great one touch passing, so I think yeah they're going to continue to get really good results against lower table teams, and I I think at the point in Southampton's development as a club, that's what you want to do. You want to go to Burnley and get three points. You want to go to Sheffield and get three points. Right. That's really really key. Uh, I I I think that kind of like you said the trade off. We'll talk maybe a little bit more about that in. Um, the weaknesses, but like Manchester United is a really good example of a bottom half table club that I think Southampton could really bring the heat on. Yeah. If if Manchester United play the way that they should, which is sitting back and trying to hit on the counter and hit on the break, then I think they would give Southampton a lot of grief. But I think what will happen when they play Southampton, this is my kind of prediction looking forward, is they're not going to do that. They, their ego will get in the way. They're going to view themselves as a bigger club. They're going to try to possess higher. And Southampton will just press them and win the ball. It, like You can mm-hmm. see Bruno turning over the ball like a zillion times in that game. Yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, so I think that's a, a kind of a good example of, uh, of what I'm viewing as, as a strength of Southampton as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, I mean... I think if we flip it over now to looking at some of the vulnerabilities, at least, that they present, um, I think structurally the biggest vulnerability that they provide or that they are, or that, uh, that I'm seeing is those outside, those wide spaces. Um, when you play 4-4-2, when you play um, the space that's, that's usually really valuable to get into is the space right behind one of the outside midfielders. Um, and the reason is because if you can get into that space, it's very easy to create a 2v1 against the outside defender, get the ball into the corner, and now you've got a cross. Worse comes mm-hmm. to worse, and one of the outside or one of the central defenders is dragged out to try to solve that, you can break into the 18, and things start to really kind of break down, almost domino-like when that happens. So a lot of times, traditionally, way you'll play defense when you play 4-4-2 is you'll play with both of those lines, both lines of four, like chains, where when the ball's on the right side, the right right midfielder steps up, and all three slide across in behind him, and the same exact thing happens in the defensive line behind it. The right right defender, sorry, steps up into the pocket behind, and all three defenders slide over. That is because when you do that, it's extremely hard to play in behind the midfielder. You've got another, you got the you got the outside midfielder stepping with the outside defender right behind him, maybe like 10 yards apart, and you've got everybody pinched in over, right? It's very hard to break a team on the outside. 
Now, the way that Southampton plays by tucking those guys in so centrally leaves that space open when, when they're in transition, right? When they are attacking and clustering the midfield, and then maybe they even stick around a little longer to try to win the ball back if it's lost temporarily. If a team can move the ball into those wide spaces very quickly, Southampton is almost definitely going to have to just run the, run the field back. Because if they try to shift and win that ball, things could get even more devastating. Because if the outside defender steps up, well, now the, the, the back three have to shift over to try to cover the space behind, or it's, he's definitely going to get beat. And if they do that, they're losing some time going back, and that's just a ball over the top. And that's it. Uh, so it's like, it's, it's like a, I guess I'd put it this way, like, as simple as I can, when that happens, you're screwed. <laughs> like, you, you, there's not really like a good, there's not like a good option when that happens. So you kind of just have to give it up and go back, which is a lot of physical effort, or it's a lot of danger if you try to solve it another way. Um, so that to me is like the biggest structural vulnerability that I see for that team, given the way that they're playing. Um, you know, so it might work well if they're effectively winning the ball back when they're in the center of the field or their attacks always end with a shot or a cross that goes out of bounds and they can reset. Um, but if they're getting, if they're losing the ball in those moments, it could be very dangerous for them. Yeah, this is borne out in the, in the reality of the season for them so far. I think eight of the 12 goals that they've conceded have come from counter slash transition play where the other team has won the ball off them in the middle and then exploited the space. You can look up some good examples of this. The Jorginho ball over the top to Timo Werner to release him. I think in another setup and situation, your right back is there to give your your center back some support so it's not a pure one-on-one. But like you said, the right back is like pushed up so high. Like there's a lot of space there. Yeah. Harry Kane had like a zillion assists to to Sun in mm-hmm. in their win against Southampton. Yeah. Um. And those were almost all exactly from that. Like transitional play, end on belly disrupting, Harry Kane getting the ball, breaking the lines with a single pass. It's like super easy. Yeah. I think if if you watch the highlights of that Tottenham game, I think it's the best example of this. It looks comical, like how open and how easy it is for for them to keep scoring, and it's just, I I, I think goes yeah. to yeah goes goes to that weakness exactly. Dynamic drop dy- players that are dynamically dropping into space like a false nine, like a Harry Kane kind of thing we're seeing over there. It's also going to be really, really deadly because it it just compounds the problem. One, there's a player moving back to support play out of the center of the field that wasn't there right so like you step up to pressure this ball and suddenly a guy drops in behind you as like a as like a help so that's good that just helps facilitate getting the ball out but second it forces the central defenders to also kind of have to make a decision are we going to chase that guy and leave even more vulnerable space behind us or are we just going to give up right now and just start sprinting back right which is i mean you know you Sometimes you you feel the decision gets made for you, right? Like you chase him a little too far, and you're like, "Oh shit! Well, I just have to finish this now. Like I can't I can't turn around now." Um, so that kind of play is a good example of something that would even you know if you were trying to make a cocktail to to end Southampton, 
bringing dropping players in to help facilitate play out in transition would be would be pretty could be pretty devastating because i guess i guess i lied when i said the most dangerous place is the space right behind the outside mids it's actually the space behind the central mids but that happens so rarely in a 442 or it shouldn't <laughs> it should happen i mean because it's like the worst possible breakdown um which is why those guys have to play so well together if they don't play well together they're creating they're gonna get one v two v one over and over again Right, the first guy will step. He'll get two v one and beat. The second guy will step. He'll get two v one and beat. And now it's the back four. Right, so yeah. that should that should like never happen. But if it does, really dangerous stuff. So teams that counter for sure have an advantage because that transition play should be architected for them. They should know exactly what they're going to do when they win the ball to make it fast transition. So, I think another thing that's concerning to me about them is they rely so heavily on pace in their players. And they're intentionally uh, training players who are really fast, buying players who are really fast, who have a lot of pace. So I think it's not like they're building a squad of people who don't have this in their wheelhouse. That being said, I think, you know, it's a long season. This is also a season with a lot of fixture congestion. Uh, And I, I, I think that at a certain point, fitness can kind of, yeah, it can wear down. That Aston Villa game felt like a really good example of this in a single game kind of moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Southampton go up 4-0. The game looks like completely done. Aston Villa pull one back. And then Aston Villa score two in extra time mm-hmm. and almost scored three to draw the game. And it really just looked like Southampton was purely gassed. Like mm-hmm. they had already like run it all out. And I think some of that's mental. You're up by a lot. But I also think some of that is physical. And when you you put such an emphasis on press, winning the ball in transition, and really like, yeah, playing hard and playing really forward and really driving and relying so much on pace, there's a cost to that. There is a trade-off. And I think it wouldn't shock me if we saw Southampton's results tail off towards the end of the season because of fatigue and related injuries due to fatigue um, that arise. Yeah, definitely. I, that. And I, I think maybe the flip side of what I said earlier, I think Southampton will struggle against top clubs, and they already have struggled against Tottenham. I think they caught Chelsea at kind of a weird moment for them. Um, I think Kepa was still in goal for that game, so you, you kind of got to <laughs> scratch that one from the record. Uh, but I, I think that like bigger teams with better personnel are just going to be able to win the one-on-ones uh, and stop the transitional attack, exploit the space like we've talked about, and also I think draw Southampton in and be able to play out of the back. Like I think City will really give them some grief as an example of a team if City is on their game and Pep is not getting too cute. Because I think City, when they're smart and playing well, can draw, draw a team in and one-touch pass out the back really nicely. And I think that... Yeah, you know, you you yeah. get by the central midfielders. It's it's tough. This is the this is the two sides of the coin for me, really, when it comes to the big teams or the big six or the teams that we think are really powerful. Is like four four two isn't fancy on defense. Like when when people are coming and pressing you really hard and like trying to possess in your half. 4-4-2 is super, super strong. It's extremely well-structured. Defensive shape is super obvious. Everybody knows their role. It's not an easy thing to break down. So if you're a team that wants to go like take it to Southampton 
and you're thinking about doing it in the context of, of undermining their style of play, pressing them is not the way to do that. Like a Man City team that puts Kevin De Bruyne in between the lines of Southampton is, again, going to waste so much resource doing that that they could much, I think, much more effectively implement if they were to sit a little bit deeper or at least to have their playmaker sit a little bit deeper and coax them out, right? Um, but if you if you sit back against them, they're not a team that's designed to like be so good at possessing the ball and finding space in between you. They're like, you know, they're not going to eat you up like piranhas, right? They don't really have that. They don't have anybody. You're like, that guy's a playmaker. He finds these beautiful balls into. Not really. If the one advantage of them having it up in your half is they might have enough shots and crosses to get it some some corners, and then they can you know throw up some big guys and and try to get a get a ball off off of, off of a set piece, you know. So, I mean, but. They're not, they're not a team that I see designed very well to do that. So if they're playing a lower table team that's sitting deeper, I could see them struggle and like lose a goal early and be, have a hard time getting it back. If they're playing a big team that comes and press them, I could see them having surprisingly effective counters and, and being pretty decent on defense. But it really is about how that other team presents because their, their strength definitely lies in the way that they attack um, from the four four two, and and that usually involves them coming from their half and bringing it to yours, not like setting up camp. You know, um, what what team in the Premier League right now does yeah. a really good job sitting deep and then cycling the ball up to one guy to score? <laughs> well, if you're talking about Jamie Vardy, then I think I know who you're talking about. Funny that you say that because <laughs> last year. Lester under Brendan Rodgers against Ralph beat Southampton 9-0. Oh yeah, dude, nine I forgot about that. 0. Yeah. So I think that's a that's it's a, fucked. Yeah. But I think that's exactly what I think both of us have been talking about. I think we're just sort of splitting hairs as to envisioning like right. which club we're going to see do that. Right. But that's the thing is like You're Tottenham right. did that already this season really well. They hung 5 on him, could have hung more. And I think like we'll 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 see that from clubs that are well coached and are not going to enter into the game with the sense like we need to take the game to Southampton. When you enter the game and you think, okay, we need to let Southampton in and we need to really sit back, then yeah, I mean, right, it, it's it's there. Yeah, um, and if you think about how you were saying earlier how they play so direct, that that's not gonna they're not gonna seduce you out. They're not gonna play around the back and like bring you out if, if you let them come they're gonna come <laughs> they're gonna go that they're gonna go to the other end of the field so it's not like they do that either you know what i mean it's not like they play oh well we're just possessing come get it and then oh now we're countering they don't really do that you know what i mean they're very direct so they're not going to set that up for themselves like that either if you give them that if you give them space to come forward they're coming and then and then like you said you might be able to hang maybe almost double digits on Southampton, which is so sad to think about. I think, uh, listener, on that note, I think that's a good stopping point for us. Just to give you some things to look forward to with them, their next five fixtures, they play Wolves, Manchester United, Brighton, Sheffield, and Arsenal. I think it's a really nice uh, sample of games where you're seeing uh, clubs that play in some really different styles and are at different points. So, I think we'll learn a lot more about Southampton over those next five fixtures. And, 
yeah, and, and see how that team develops and see how that team does without Danny Ings. Yeah, um, yeah. It, this was great, Rodrigo, getting to go a little deeper on one club. Um, and, yeah, listener, we're looking forward to talking early next week about all the games as the Premier League will be back very soon. Yeah, back in action. Excited to talk about it as well, Duffy. Thanks for thanks for giving our Saints uh, a nice episode. I feel like they deserved it after all their hard work. Definitely. Talk to you soon, Ron. Yes, of course.